0: I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a podcast of short personal stories that prove the old adage, life is stranger than fiction. On this week's episode, Greg takes us to the shipyard and inside a nuclear submarine where he gets a job as a trash man, assisting an old former welder named Mario who fills their time on the Navy sub with a series of enlightening adventures and reveals some hard truths about the defense industry. Mario and the Atomic hard Hats. When I was in my early 20s, after graduating from college, my dad got me a job with a big defense contractor at their shipyard. I was in the midst of the same transition that most recent graduates go through where the academic lessons learned bump up against the hard realities of the work world. I was definitely lost and adrift and not sure where I was going as I headed for work at my first real job. Arriving at the yard on that first morning, I found myself joining a river of thousands of men flowing through the main gate of the shipyard and branching out into dozens of different streams that coursed through the yard. At the same time, the rising tide was surging in from the bay in the opposite direction, flowing into dozens of different channels and basins, lifting the new ships that were tethered there. I felt the sort of exhilaration I'd never experienced before, being part of a huge, very physical, and very male enterprise. 7,000 men with 14,000 hands and 70,000 fingers would all soon be fashioning these mammoth vessels that would go out to sail the globe. And in the middle of all this, there was me, a tiny ant-like figure looking up in wonder, musing to myself that words like massive or monumental or colossal couldn't begin to capture the awesome feeling of the place. At the same time, though, I was acutely aware that I could easily disappear under the foot of some giant Ozymandias, gone forever. I secured my job because my dad knew some higher-ups in the corporation. When I reported to a designated low-level administrator and foreman, who both knew that I got my job because I knew some big shot. They made sure that I was assigned to the worst job in the yard, namely that of Sweeper, their name for trash collector. The punishment for my connections didn't stop there either. I was to work inside a nearly completed nuclear submarine called the USS Sunfish, and I'd be moving through a maze of unventilated, windowless steel rooms and passageways where both welding and smoking were permitted, a virtual death trap for the lungs. All the workers in the yard wore color coded construction hard hats. The highest corporate executives, on their rare visits, wore gold hard hats, and at the other end of the spectrum, the lowly sweepers wore black hard hats. The only thing lower than a black hard hat was a shiny new black hard hat, which meant that the wearer was a new hire, open to all the hazing and abuse that newbies have to endure the world over. Naturally, My first order of business was to climb back up the ship's ladder, through the hatch and across the gangplank onto solid ground. There I searched for a hidden spot where I could vigorously rub my new hardhead in the cinders until every speck of shine was scuffed off. When I returned to the sub looking like a veteran sweeper, the final coup de grace was delivered. I was assigned to be the assistant for a cranky former welder named Mario Sacco. He wore grimy overalls that looked like they'd never been washed, his rumpled, matted hair stuck down from the edges of his very old black hard hat, and below that, he had a stubbly growth of beard sprouting from his jaw, which stuck out just like the cartoon character Popeyes. To complete the snagglepuss look, a number of his teeth were missing. After welding for 20 years, Mario's brain was seriously impaired. It is now known that years of welding, which negatively ionizes the body and brain, can lead to serious mental and physical problems. In Mario's case, while his behavior was erratic, he was still sharp at the center of it all. Sweepers spend most of the time that they're actually working sweeping up cigarette butts. In my case, the drill was pretty straightforward. A tradesman, say a welder, would finish smoking his cigarette inside the unventilated sub and crush it underfoot on the deck. Then he would summon Mario and point down to the butt. Mario, after telling the welder to go fuck himself, would then call me over and re-point to the butt, at which point I would use my long-handled whisk room and standing dustpan to sweep up the butt, much to the amusement of everybody on deck. This pantomime was repeated hour after hour, day after day, until I was completely inured to any kind of embarrassment or hard feeling. As we moved around inside the ship or outside on the top deck, various workers, sometimes on the scaffolding of the surrounding ships, would sing out in a falsetto voice the three syllables of Mario's name. Mario Mario would look around fiercely to find the singer, as yet another worker would pick up the refrain, and his name would echo between the ships. Mario would stick out his chin even further than normal, throw a little shit fit, and then angrily move on with his sweeping, with me in tow. The song would fade until the next time someone felt like torturing the old guy. Most of the men in the yard seemed incredibly cruel to each other, but were especially tough on Mario. Good old-fashioned ball-busting was the order of the day. All day, every day. I took my fair share as well, of course. One day I was sweeping outdoors on the top of the sub and noticed that the ramp to the concrete pier on one side of the sub had wheels where it met the sub, so that as the tide came in and out, raising and lowering the ship, the ramp would roll up and down with the tide. Yet on the other side of the sub, the ramp was fixed, which to me looked like it would snap with the tidal movement of the sub. I shared my musings with one of the pipe fitters that I knew who was passing by. He snorted and pointed to the pier at the top of the fixed ramp and said, That's because it isn't a pier, College Boy. It's a barge which floats with the tide. Afterwards, I could hear the story being passed around between workers on deck. The name College Boy stuck to me after that, or sometimes they just called me CB. After a few days on the job, I noticed that Mario disappeared every afternoon for an hour or two. One day after lunch, he decided to share the secrets of his whereabouts. He walked outdoors on the top of the sub to the bow. The sub had a beautiful, smooth, elongated oval shape, not unlike a well-made, fat Cuban cigar. Because the sub was round in cross-section, and workers could easily slide into the water, for safety there was a wooden walkway built around the above-water periphery of the entire boat. The walkway had a plywood wall on its outer edge, painted hunter green, and there was all sorts of equipment and supplies stored up against the fence, Pumps, welding units, gas canisters, crates and bundles of pipes and steel fittings ringed the top edge of the sub. When Mario and I reached a point as far forward toward the bow as we could walk, he looked around furtively to make sure that no one was watching. Come on, kid, he beckoned, and then crawled between a gang box and a welding unit, grabbing a plastic bundle from behind the welder while sliding aside a section of the plywood. When I followed him through, I found myself in a different world, crouching on the smooth, curved nose of the submarine, with a soft sea breeze blowing off the bay and the waves gently lapping against the sides of the sub. Mario handed me a somewhat greasy, inflatable pillow. This time he said, Here you go, kiddo, smiling at me for the first time. He stretched out on the sloping, warm steel, and before I could completely inflate my pillow, he was snoring away. It was an idyllic place shielded from the noise of the yard by the plywood wall and the equipment behind us. And best of all, because the sub stuck out into the bay further than any other vessel, no one could see us from any vantage point in the yard. So I enjoyed my first nap while working in the shipyard. It was a lovely sleep. In the film The Color of Money, there is a quote that goes, Money won is twice as sweet as money earned. And the same could be said about a sweet summer sleep on a sunny afternoon while all the while getting paid by a big time defense contractor. While the guys were hard on each other, They were just as brutal in what they had to say about their employer. Most thought the place was a joke in many ways. One day, for example, a flatbed truck pulled up on the concrete pier by our sub, bearing a large sonar computer unit. It was the size of a small cargo van and had to be lifted by cable from the crane on top of the superstructure above. While the truck waited, it had to pull forward so another truck could get by, but the driver failed to back up his truck to its original position. When the group of riggers were in position, the foreman signaled to the crane operator above and commenced lifting. The cable tightened and groaned, but just as the computer started to lift, it slid sideways over the sub and then smashed up against the side of the barge beyond. Pieces of wooden pallet flew apart in all directions, and the computer dropped into the water, making a huge splash and a circular wave. Just as the wait staff in restaurants often breaks into applause when a full dinner tray crashes to the floor, so too did all the workers within sight of the fallen computer. Applause and hoots echoed between all the nearby ships. It took a couple of hours to get two divers in the water to look for the computer. After a few minutes, one of them came to the surface and announced that, yeah, it's down there, which prompted another round of applause. Just before quitting time, the computer had been re-rigged by the divers and lifted back out of the drink, which is shipyard talk for the bay, spouting water in all directions. The dripping flatbed then left the pier, and the submarine's production schedule was set back four to six months. After the truck rolled away and the clapping head died down, Mario sidled up to me, whispering, What do you think, kiddo? They're all fucking idiots. But nonetheless, he joined in the applause, because he hated the shipbuilding company more than the incompetent and cool workers surrounding us. One of the crazy things back then about this country's military procurements is an interesting twist called cost plus bidding, which is still in effect today. A major contractor will bid a fixed amount to build and deliver a submarine, for example. But if there are any cost overruns, which there always are, the contractor will receive his fixed price amount plus a percentage of that amount of the overruns. Thus, the more a ship costs to build, the more profit the contractor makes. Consequently, our management didn't give a whit about computers falling into the drink or how many men were asleep in various nooks and crannies on the USS Sunfish. In the end, the gold hats always came out on top. Mario seemed to be sleeping more and more as time went on, but he did come up with his mini version of the computer fiasco. We were sweeping on the top deck one day shortly thereafter when we came upon a beautifully crafted stainless steel custom-made cover for an access hole in the conning tower lying on the deck of the sub. Mario picked it up with some effort because of its weight and looked at it. Just as I thought he was about to admire the craftsmanship involved, he made a mighty thrust and hurled it over the fence into the drink. Then off he went, sweeping away. When we were both questioned by some metal-lathe operators about its whereabouts the next day, Mario played dumb, and so did I. As we worked day after day, side by side, there were many other such incidents. Slowly, I began to develop an understanding of what he was all about. He wasn't crazy or even mean-spirited. He was just getting even with the system that treated him badly and still did. Maybe he was kind of a personal one-man anarchist movement. A few days after that, Mario put his arm around me and leaned in, saying, Got a good one for you, kiddo. And then he spirited me forward on one of the inside levels of the sub to visit the sonar sphere. It was a perfect steel sphere, probably 30 feet in diameter, lined on the inside with a specially formulated matte black soundproofing rubber. The last panel of the sphere had yet to be put in place, and so Mario pushed me to crawl in, saying, You're going to like it in there, kiddo. I went inside with the aid of his flashlight and found myself balanced on an I-beam that extended to the exact epicenter of the sphere. It was this beam that would hold the sound-transmitting equipment to feed sounds to the spherical system, isolating certain frequencies that would detect other vessels in the sub-vicinity when the sunfish was at sea. Now, however, there was just a two-foot padded square at the end of the beam. I moved cautiously, shinning along the beam to say that it's end. It was unlike anywhere that had ever been before in my entire life. There was no noise whatsoever, and the black mat soundproofing also sucked up any light. So when I turned off the flashlight, I felt suspended in an absolutely jet-black void. I could hear my heart beating, and even the blood rushing through my veins. As the months passed, and Mario continued to spend more and more time asleep on the bow, I found the sonar sphere to be my new favorite place on the sub. I would sit and meditate, suspended in the silence of what seemed like an infinite black void. I always brought in the access door with me, though, just in case my meditative state got so deep that I didn't hear someone sealing me in, and thus sealing my fate. Mario and I could always be found together, traipsing around the sub. We were like Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, Except I played Sancho to Mario's Quixote, who was forever jousting forward with his push broom. Yet another fiasco followed shortly thereafter. As we were sweeping inside the sub, an electrician I knew stopped us and suggested that I close my eyes and stand straight to see if I noticed anything. Then he said, Does it feel like the sub is listing?" Mario closed his eyes and then did a little hula dance, harrumphing, The whole fucking place is listing." Come on, kid, let's go and off he went. I stayed put, and I moved my weight back and forth on my legs, gauging my balance, and had to agree with the electrician. Over the next few days, as the sub listed more and more, Mario came up with an ingenious makeshift test. He placed a clear water bottle, which had parallel ridges on its side, on a high step of a fixed ladder near us, and sighted along the water level inside. And then I did too, and you could see that the water level was slightly out of alignment with the ridges. As we squinted and looked, I said, Mario, you're a genius. You've been playing dumb all this time. Meanwhile, another worker standing by interrupted, Yeah, he's a real genius, staring at a water bottle with College Boy, a real pair of fucking morons. Then Mario countered with, You want to fight about it? Stick your head up your ass and fight for air. At which point someone further along the sub started singing, Mario. When the ship's list reached 8 degrees off vertical, everybody was pulled off the boat. We got to sit around the pier for a week while everything on board was both x-rayed and weighed. One day while we were waiting around, Mario beckoned me up the gangplank. Got another one for you, kiddo, come on. I could never figure out what was going on in the old guy's head when he called me kid as opposed to kiddo. We walked to the other side of a big construction shed by our sub, and there was a small shed that looked very much like a tourist cottage. Guess what this is, kid. When I said I had no idea, he continued, this is where all the secret plans for the entire sub are kept, including the reactor. The door was open wide, and no one was around. And I queried. Mario led me inside, where there was a large and very thick book, maybe two feet by three feet. As Mario turned some pages, showing mechanical drawings for all the different aspects of the sub, he said, And how about stealing a few pages? No way, Mario. I'm out of here, I said a little freaked out, and headed back to the sub. I thought to myself that I'd better be careful with Mario or we're both going to end up in very deep shit. As everyone waited on the dock for the weighing and x-raying to be completed, the ship suddenly righted itself. And that was that. We were told to go back on the sub. Even though no one figured out why she was listing. Meanwhile, there was a group of Navy men from the Submarine Corps stationed by the Sunfish, so they'd be familiar with the vessel both inside and out. When they called up the investigation as to why the sub was listing, these sailors were not at all happy, knowing that someday they could be cruising deep under the Arctic ice cap, hundreds of miles from its edges, on a ship that had a problem, maybe a very big problem. We were told one day to completely clean the inside of the sub because the next day, the president of the corporation and its chairman of the board, along with Ted Kennedy and some other Washington dignitaries, would be visiting. The foreman brought on extra help and really cracked the whip that day. On the following morning, as the crowd of dignitaries assembled in the sub's control room, Mario was sweeping the hallway leading to that area. As he swept forward, I thought that he just wanted to sneak a peek, but I was mistaken. He pushed into the crowded room, where many were wearing their gold hard hats, and continuously thrust his wide broom forward, hitting those in his path in their feet, while muttering, Get out of the way! How's a man supposed to do his job? There was no security present, because we were all in the belly of a top-secret vessel. The assembled men tried to move, or were pushed aside in embarrassed confusion, before anyone could respond or speak out. I followed right behind Mario, and before you know it, we'd completely pushed our way through the crowd, leaving consternation and disarray in our wake. Once we turned the first corner, Mario thrust aside his broom and hurried me up the hatchway ladder and then made a beeline for the bow. By the time they mobilized below, Mario was basking in the sun, sporting a big, toothless grin. Surprisingly, when different workers and even low-level supervisors were queried by the higher-ups, who was that man? They all had Mario's back. I don't know who that was. Do you know who it was? I don't know who it was. Mario never ceased to amaze me. He treated everyone like shit, management and workers alike, but treated me well. He played dumb, but wasn't dumb at all, and he threw a wrench in the works whenever the opportunity presented itself. I tried to get closer to him to figure all this out, but he would never give me a straight answer to any of my questions. Where were you born? Were you ever married? Why don't you weld anymore? Any such questions were met with his standard answer. Stick your nose somewhere else, kid. Or more simply put, none of your fucking business. So I stopped asking him anything personal. I did slowly begin to understand Mario's motives and his own personal brand of anarchism. He didn't expect to improve the system or exchange it for a better one, but just to stand up to it and slow it down, and maybe thereby hold on to a scrap of his dignity and humanity, in opposition to this huge, inhumane system. The old man continued to sleep more and more, as my tenure on the sunfish continued. Then one day he didn't show up at all, and I was told he was sick. Day after day went by, and no Mario. I asked around, but no one seemed to know his whereabouts. As the weeks passed, I found myself truly missing his stalwart companionship, and so one day at quitting time, I stopped into the company office by the front gate. The guy behind the counter took forever to look him up, and then said, it says here, Mario Sacco, deceased. I caught my breath as a little whimper squeaked out. Oh, no, 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 no. I actually started crying a bit, and ducked outside to hide my tears. As I sat on the bus riding home that night, I just couldn't believe it. Mario had given his health and life to the company and they couldn't even notify his coworkers of his passing or make some sort of humane gesture. When they do cost estimates on large industrial projects like building a sub or a skyscraper, they always factor in a certain number of dead workers. On our sub, we lost two. And they weren't just line items on a budget spreadsheet, but real living, breathing human beings who had families and parents and children and lives that mattered. I missed him immediately and felt so bad that I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. My loneliness deepened after that, and although it was a silly gesture, every time I lay out on the bow, I put out Mario's inflatable pillow next to mine. He died at 61, looking like he was 81. Mario's last name was Sacco, the same as Nicola Sacco of Sacco and Vanzetti, who paid the ultimate price for their anarchism, execution in the electric chair. Mario's execution involved electricity too, but it was much slower, taking place over 20 years while he leaned in very close to a source of very high voltage electricity. I decided that I didn't want to be part of this anymore and gave my notice the next morning. One night at my apartment a few weeks later, my landlady knocked on the door and handed me a large, soiled, somewhat crumpled envelope with my address badly scrawled across the front, my name misspelled, and no return address. She said she'd received it a few weeks back and meant to give it to me sooner. After she left, I opened it up and unfolded the plan book pages for the nuclear reactor. Top Secret was stamped across it in several places. Inside was a scratchy note in the same handwriting. Here you go, kiddo. Maybe you can sell this and retire. Good luck, Mario Sacco. Once again, I was moved to tears. I was also definitely freaked out at having plans in my possession, espionage laws being what they are. After all, they did execute the Rosenbergs for essentially the same thing. So I burned the plans in my kitchen and placed the ashes in a small olive jar which had an ornate Italian gold label. It was all I had left for my partnership with Mario. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The Compulsive Storyteller is produced by Peter Kokoma and me, Greg Lefebvre. This week's episode featured music by Peter Kokoma, who also made our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, and it would be great if you would leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story.